go ahead and get started here. We'll just let everybody get settled. Uh, let me open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started with the class this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We just uh, look forward to this day here together with, with each other and, and just worshiping you. And Father, we just pray that today in, in the Sunday school hour and, and in the worship service to follow, we just uh, pray that the things we do would be pleasing to you, that you would guide our hearts and minds, help us to uh, be focused on you and, and to learn from you. And, and we just pray, Father, that... Uh, that we would be able to praise you today. And we just ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'd like to have you turn your Bibles uh, this morning to Revelation chapter 11. We are going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. We're only going to get uh, about halfway through Revelation 11. The reason for that is because Revelation 11 is one of the most interesting, um, most debated, most difficult passages uh, in, in the book. Uh, it, it is a fascinating passage. In fact, I want to begin by reading, uh, just reading the four, those 14 verses. And then we'll go back and we'll break it down into smaller segments and we'll, we'll study study it together, but uh, I, I want you to just kind of get the impact of those 14, first 14 verses, um, and, and I think you'll see just how kind of fascinating this passage is. Re Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to start at verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the, the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and, and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by, by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of, of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, the third woe is coming. All right, as I said, what a fascinating passage of Scripture. Uh, there's an awful lot going on here. So let's take this a little bit at a time, let's break this down into three segments uh, and, and, and study what, what is happening and try to get an idea, kind of wrap our heads around uh, what, is, what exactly is going on? We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 to start, and then we'll look at verses 3 through 6, and then verses 7 through 14. Before we do that, I want to kind of read to you something. Um, this is from uh, the New American Commentary series. This was done by, by Dr. Paige Patterson, uh, and it, it's commentary I've been using a lot during this, uh, during this time. Uh, I probably use this more so than than the other ones that I've been, been looking at. Um, I want to read something here from him that kind of sets this up a little bit. 
It says the interlude of, in Revelations 10:1 through 11:14 continues with a second remarkable event John has been a participant in. Uh, the, the saga of the small scroll and ha, has learned through the consumption of the volume God's uh, purpose for him to prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That John is again, uh, or asked once again, to participate in his own vision in chapter 11 is not surprising. This time, we'll have a, he will have a limited role and will merely introduce the arrival of the two most enigmatic figures in the book of Revelation. Many commentaries have, uh, have believed that making sense of the verses of chapter 11 may be the most difficult assignment for the expositor of the apocalypse. You know, a, a lot, and, and as, as I mentioned throughout the course of this, I mean, I, I've been looking at probably five or six different commentaries, uh, you know, kind of uh, just drawing on, on different the thoughts of different scholars. Uh, and as he mentioned, this is considered to be one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult passage uh, in all of, of, of Revelation. So let's look first at, at verses 1 and 2. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, a couple things we, we need to try to, to answer in these first two uh, verses. One, what is this rod? Okay, it says a reed uh, like a rod. Well, this is probably a, a, a reference to an ancient measuring technique uh, that used kind of uh, reeds that grew along rivers. Uh, in, in Israel, they were particularly uh, abundant in, in, in the Jordan River Valley. Uh, they were very tall reeds. Uh, I believe the, the name of it was a calamus was the name in, 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 in Hebrew, the Hebrew or Greek, I'm not sure which one. Uh, I don't know what, the, you know what scientists today would call them. Uh, but uh, they, they were common. They were a common reed that grew along, along rivers. Uh, I've read of them be, being as, as tall as, say, 15 feet tall. Uh, and, and what they would usually do is they would take that reed, cut it down. They were hollow in the middle. Uh, they would cut it down and then cut it to a, a length of what they wanted to measure things by. Uh, one commentator I, I read said that usually it was 10 foot 4 inches, but I, I think it kind of changed depending on what they wanted to do. Uh, and the idea was, uh, you know, th think of the convenience of having a tape measure. You, you know, the, the ancient world didn't have anything quite like that. Uh, there's a lot of things that we kind of take for granted in our modern time. I mean, Lowe's is, is you know, what, uh, a half a mile from here? You can go down to Lowe's, buy a tape measure, and, and, and measure, you know, I, you know, depending on the size of the tape measure, you can measure a lot. Well, they, you know, they couldn't go to Lowe's. Uh, and, and so, and, and they would measure off, you know, they had measuring devices. Uh, you know, the ancient people were brilliant people. Uh, they, they figured out ways to do things. They would have measuring devices, but if they didn't have something like that handy, they could take, a, you know, one of these reeds, uh, measure it, and use that as, as a measuring device. Hold it up against something. Let's say you cut it at 10 foot, and you wanted to know, you know, the length of something. Well, lay the reed down, mark the spot the reed ended, take the reed, lay it up against that spot, and you could get an idea of, of, of how long something was. So that's probably what we have going on here. That's, that's the, the, the reference. It's, it's a, one of these measuring reeds. And he's told to take this reed and, and, and measure uh, the, the temple, the temple of God, the altar, and, and says with its worshipers. Uh, you know, it, it, it's basically measure the, the, the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. Some tr translations have count the worshipers, uh, and I'll read you something about that in a minute. That's probably not a real accurate translation. Um, that's more of a commentary than it is a translation, honestly. What does it mean to do this? Uh, you know, what, what's this measuring about, and how do you measure a worshiper? 
Was he literally to go along and like have them all stand there and then see how tall they were? Like, you know, what, what is going on in this passage? Well, measuring in, in the, 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 the Bible usually has a, a particular meanings, uh, a kind of symbolic meanings. And, and let, me, let me read something to you here uh, again from, from this commentary. And we're going to read from this quite a bit today because there's a lot here that kind of needs uh, some scholarly explanation uh, that we're going to run into in this passage that's beyond my ability to explain, Okay. Uh, it says, however, in this case, the measuring appears to have nothing to do with establishing the specific size of the objects measured. It, it, you know, God doesn't care about the height of the worshipers in the temple. That's not the point. Some other purposes seem to be involved when the prophet is told to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. The NIV reading, count the worshipers there, uh, probably mistakes the purpose of the measuring and forces on the Greek text the interpretation of the translators, who add the worshipers to the temple, uh, and the, and, uh, to the, the altar and the temple, i.e. the things measured. Measurements serve different purposes in biblical times. Certainly a measurement could be for the purpose of determining size, but more often in Scripture, measurement uh, served as a device for indicating divine action. Sometimes the divine action was judgment, as in Amos 7.7. Other times it was an indication of God's protecting providence, uh, as is apparently the case in this passage. I want you to think of it this way. How many of you ever bought a new a new house raise your hand you got you know most of us you know have bought a house at some point or another what did you do when you first bought that house you may have did it even before you bought the house when you were looking at it did any of you ever take like like a measuring tape or anything like that and start measuring things in the house to see where furniture would fit to see where appliances would fit to see if you'd have enough room for this or that what do you start thinking in your mind the moment you start taking those measurements? Don't you start thinking, this is mine? It's kind of almost like a symbol of, this, this is going to belong to me. I'm going to take control of this. I want to measure this. This is mine. I want to see how I'm going to use this. Well, see, that's the same way God uses measuring often in the Bible. Back in the times of, of, of the prophets, he would, he would tell the prophets at times, go measure this or that, and then part of the message of God to the prophet was that this was God's. This was his. You know, he, he wanted to, to, to point out what belonged to him for the purpose then of, of, of his being in control of it, his protecting it, nothing else could take that from him. It's very similar in a way to something that Jesus said about how the, the Father holds us in his hand. Now, that's not measuring, but it's the same type of idea. It's the idea of possession. Of, but, and, but the point of that was not just that, man, God's got you. The point of what Jesus was saying is God protects you. You're his. You're in his hand. Well, this is the same idea here. That's the way measuring is used often in Scripture in a kind of a symbolic way. It's God saying, you're mine. This belongs to me. Nothing can take this from me. And what God seems to be saying here through John, through the actions of John in handing this rod, uh, you know, ha having this, 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 this measuring rod, is this is mine. This temple belongs to me. Now, it's interesting, he says, exclude the outer court. The word there that's used is, is a Greek word basically for throw away. And, and it means to either throw something away or exclude it, to, to, to not have it involved. And, and he, he says to, to you know, kind of throw away or exclude that outer court. Now, what's that mean? Well, you know, he gives explanation here. He says in verse 2, exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now see, uh, there you get the idea of God's protection and God's possession. He says measure the temple, 
Measure the altar, measure the people in the temple. They're mine. They belong to me. I'll protect them. Don't measure the outer court of the temple because that's been given to the Gentiles and they're going to trample that for 42 months. So you, got, you guys get the picture? Possession of the altar and everything in it, or I mean of the temple and everything in it, including the altar and the worshipers. Possession and protection, but everything outside of that including the outer quarter of the temple, God said, don't measure that. I'm giving that over to them to trample for 42 months. Okay? Now, a couple, a couple things that we need to talk about here. Well, one, which temple are we talking about? Many, many and this is where um, we kind of hit our first point of divergence among scholars. Because you would not believe how many temples people have come up with that this could be talking about. You know, most of the time I think when we read it, our mind automatically goes to, you know, the temple of, of Jesus' day. Okay? And, and, and we'll talk about that. That's one of the possibilities here. One possibility, you know, would be Solomon's temple. The problem with Solomon's temple is it was destroyed by the Babylonians when they invaded Jerusalem in 586, okay? So it's not likely that, that, it, that it is referring to that. If it's referring to it, it has to be figuratively. So it's not likely, and there's very few scholars that believe this is, the, 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 is Solomon's temple, okay? Uh, another possibility for what temple is the second, what is called the second temple. How many of you ever heard scholars use the phrase Second Temple Judaism? It's a, it's a very popular phrase amongst Old Testament scholars. That was the temple that existed at the time of Jesus. Uh, it, it's also called the temple, you know, Herod's temple. Uh, it's the temple that, that Herod was working on. Uh, it had already been built. Uh, I think it was like five, something, something makes me think 520 BC to like 515 BC, something like that. So before the time of Christ, hundreds of years um, before the time of Christ, but uh, Herod was adding on to it, building, you know, Herod was a great builder for all his craziness that we know him of in Scripture. Uh, he was also renowned for being, you know, a great builder. Uh, so that was kind of the temple of Jesus' lifetime that was kind of being, you know, beautified and, and even added on to and improved in Jesus's lifetime. So the second temple is a possibility. Now again, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans invaded Jerusalem. And Jesus prophesied that not one stone would be left upon another. That's what happened when Rome invaded Jerusalem. So again, it's not likely that is the second that's the second temple. Though there are some scholars who believe that, they believe that John is kind of, uh, John would have known that temple, and his audience would have known that temple, and the Jews of John's day would have looked at that temple very fondly. So some people have an early dating for the, the writing of Revelation, before 70, and they think that he's writing about that temple then. Other people have, you know, have the more traditional dating for Revelation around 95 to 100, and they, you know, some of them think that John is, is you know, kind of figuratively looking back at that temple and using that because it's so fond in the mind of the Jewish people. Okay? Again, however, not real likely. Uh, it's hard to take a lot of what is, happens in this chapter as figurative. But many, many scholars do. And not just the scholars who don't really believe the Bible. The, the liberals. But even some conservative scholars take this, you know, this passage as very, very figurative because it is so hard <laughs> to understand and kind of get your, your, your head around it. So some take the position of the second temple. Others take the position that this is a heavenly temple, the heavenly temple of God. And we've seen what seems to be references to that in the book of Revelation. How many times have we seen God having an altar in heaven during John's vision, quite often. In this same chapter, over in verse 19, 
If you want to turn over there, you see a, a very specific mention of a heavenly temple. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. So there is a reference here to a temple of God that's in heaven at the time of these events, probably in heaven right now. We don't think about that often. But the Bible does make reference to that, that there is a heavenly temple. It, you know, uh, there's a temple with God in heaven. So is that what's being talked about here? I mean, after all, there's a reference to it in the same chapter. But as some scholars point out, that's actually kind of argues against it in a way. Because there seems to be a, a differentiation between these two temples. You know, when you read verse 19, it kind of like, it's almost like it's now introducing that temple. And we saw the temple of God in heaven. So it doesn't seem likely that that is what's going on, though that is, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't give you an actual number, but my guess would be, from what I've read, that would probably be the position of most modern scholars, that this is talking about the heavenly temple. Another idea, and this one there's kind of two veins of it, and that is that this is Ezekiel's temple. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapters 40 through 48, Ezekiel uh, is given a vision and, and is to measure in, uh, in some ways the, the, uh, the kind of the, the ideal temple, kind of like the, God's idealized temple. Now, many scholars see that as the heavenly temple. Its, its scale and its beauty and everything about it is, is beyond anything that, that the earth has ever seen. And so many scholars see that as a heavenly temple, and that, that, so they think that is the, a connection here and argues for the heavenly temple. Other scholars see that as, as what they call the millennial temple, a temple that will be built either during the millennial kingdom or built during the tribulation or right before the tribulation and then will exist during the millennial kingdom. And most scholars that take a futuristic view of Revelation, that is that Revelation you know, speaks of events predominantly, not completely, but predominantly events that will happen in the future, which is the, you know, the, the view that we take. Most scholars that take that view uh, see that temple that, that of Ezekiel as a, a future temple, as a millennial temple. And, and I'll, I'll read a little bit more to you about that here in just a minute. So two ways of kind of taking this, uh, you know, uh, from that Ezekiel view. A, a heavenly temple or a, a kind of literal earthly millennial temple. There's still one other view that's taken by a lot of scholars, and that is a completely figurative view, that no actual temple exists, that this is talking about the church, it's talking about God's people, and they will use verses that, that say that we are the temple of the living God, and so they, you know, they make the argument that church is actually this temple. Now, again, I, I don't, you know, I don't subscribe to that. I think the best approach to Revelation, like to, to, you know, really every book, is to try to take, it, you know, as plain an understanding as possible, to use kind of the literal method of understanding. That doesn't mean everything is literal, but it means you take it at face value. You know, what is God trying to say here? You know, just like we do when we communicate with one another. You know, the Bible is communication. It's God trying to communicate a message. You know, if I say to you I could eat a horse, you don't really think I'm going to eat a horse, but you do understand what I'm trying to say. So you are using a literal method even though you're not taking me literally. You guys get the, you get the idea, okay? And that's what, you know, the, the, the Bible just uses language. It uses Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic, and it uses them in a literal way that people talked, which included you know, imagery, metaphor, sayings. So, you know, it, it takes some work. You've got to try to figure out what is it really trying to say here. 
To me, as I look at this, I don't see, you know, this as figuratively as some scholars like to make it, okay? Um, so, you know, I think there's, this is an actual temple here. Again, let me read uh, Dr. Patterson's view. I really like his view, I, and I, I, this is kind of the view that I subscribe to myself. It says, however, the Bible speaks of a period known as the Great Tribulation. Elsewhere, this is referenced as the time of Jacob's trouble. This tribulation is, is said to be seven years in duration and is divided uh, into two equal uh, periods of three and one-half years, or 42 months, or 1260 days, which we've seen reference to here, or time and times and half a time. Those who follow the idealist interpretation of Revelation are inclined to dismiss any literal significance to these numbers, whether they occur in the Apocalypse or in Daniel. In the end, there seems to be no good reason for that conclusion if the seven years are understood literally and if there is to be a regathering of the Jewish people into their homeland, as seems to be anticipated by Old Testament prophecies and by Paul in Romans 9 through 11. A new temple, which millenarians describe as the tribulation temple, or as, as I mentioned, some call it the millennial temple, will be constructed by the Jews in Jerusalem. At the time of the writing of this commentary, Muslim control of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem prevents the construction of a Jewish temple. Students of history, however, are, are conscious of how quickly events and circumstances can change. And those who have frequented the modern state of Israel and visited with the most religious of the Hasidim are well aware of, the intent, of their intent to build such a temple and to do it in the relative, relatively near future. Uh, and, and certainly the Hasidic Jews uh, of Israel do indeed, you know, they, they have plans to, to do this. <coughs> this commentator then understands this as a tribulation temple that will be built either immediately prior to the, the beginning of the tribulation period or else in the first three and one-half years of that tribulation. And I think to take it at its most face-value way is to take that position. That is most likely what is being spoken of here, a temple that will be at some point rebuilt in, in, in Israel. Now, if that's the case, then that means the outer, outer court of that temple is a real outer court, and Jerusalem itself will be trodden under by the Gentiles, as, as mentioned here. Now, Gentiles can mean different things in Scripture. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a term for pagan, uh, non-believers. And other times it's, it's kind of, you know, taken in a more technical sense of meaning anyone that's not Jewish. Um, depending on which view of the temple you take is going to depend on how you take the term Gentile. You know, if you believe this is a regathered Jewish nation and a, and a rebuilt temple there, then you're going to take that term Gentile to mean truly what it says, anyone who's not Jewish. You know, uh, the rest of the world, essentially. Will, will trample down the, the outer court uh, as a part of all of, of, of Jerusalem. <coughs> now, as we've already mentioned here, uh, you know, the, the time period that we're talking about, it says uh, 42, uh, you know, 42 months, 1260 days. They, if you add those all up, it adds up to three and a half years. Now, we've spoken of this already, that, that the, you know, the tribulation is kind of broken down into two, three, three-and-a-half-year periods. First three-and-a-half years, there's bad things going on, but it's not, you know, it seems pretty awful to us, but it's not nearly as bad as the later things. And we've been seeing that as we have, have been reading some of these, uh, you know, kind of things beginning the second half of the tribulation. And so that seems to be what is being spoken of here. Uh, kind of, you know, he's kind of saying that for the next three and a half years, Jerusalem will be trodden down, uh, you know, by, by the Gentiles, by uh, the, the forces essentially of Antichrist. But the temple and its worshipers will be protected, all right? So that's what it seems, seems to be saying here in these first two verses. Now look at chapter 11, verses 3 through 6. 
He says, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the, the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, the imagery that comes to my mind almost immediately is kind of like, you know, kind of our modern day, uh, uh, you know, kind of Marvel movies, you know, of somebody with like superpowers and, you know, flames shooting out of their mouths and things like that. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know about you, but, it, but that's probably the imagery that a lot of you got too. It's an extraordinary passage. I want you to imagine how extraordinary it would have been to read that in John's day. Somewhere around the year like 95 to 100 to read that passage. You know, when, when we hear that, we, we kind of have, you know, movies come instantly to our mind and scenes from them. And, and you know, even though that's all just movies, it kind of helps us to get a, a visual of what this is. They didn't have anything like that. Now they had all kinds of, of both Jewish uh, and Christian writings. They had, you know, things that people would wrote from the peoples around them, the pagan peoples around them, all kinds of, of myth and legend. Uh, you know, they had those things to draw on, but they didn't have the visuals like we have. And I'm sure when John's audience, the, those seven churches first heard that read to them. That's probably a pretty staggering thing to hear. That image of these two witnesses and flames kind of protruding out of their mouths. The two witnesses, that is one of the uh, really dif difficult things to understand about this passage. It is probably the central issue of debate about this passage. Who are these two witnesses. You know, who, who's this talking about? Again, let me read to you from uh, Dr. Patterson's commentary. Um, he does a great job here of kind of laying out the possibilities of who this is talking about, the different ideas that Bible scholars have had through the years of who this is. It says, generally, identification proceeds along one of seven lines. Again, many idealist interpreters would argue that the witnesses represent the church of the living God who bear responsibility for a witness to the world, or witness in the world. An idealist interpretation, for those of you who were not here when we began this study months ago, uh, an idealist interpretation of the book of Revelation is essentially a figurative interpretation. That it's an ideal. It's not talking about literal events, but it's an, you know, it's an ideal. So people who take this figurative, they, figuratively, they say that these two witnesses represent the church. Now that's problematic in, in, in many ways. One is the church is never told to go shoot flamethrowers at people who don't agree with them. So that, you know, tends to be a little difficult. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of easy in the mind of a lot of people, well, let's just, you know, let's kind of ignore the details and let's just say it's the church, but the problem is the church doesn't really fit the details. Uh, you know, so it's kind of a difficult interpretation. A second uh, view common in the historicist school of thinking, the historicist school of thinking, if, if you guys remember it, is that all these events already took place in history. That John was only writing to the first, you know, century church, essentially, and all these things already took place. All right? This school identifies them with uh, some historical figure or group. Uh, some people, there's different types of historicists. There are some who literally thought everything was, was done in the first century. Some of, it, some of them took it a ways into uh, the, the period after the first century. Some take it like as far as the, uh, as the Reformation and think these, you know, things were accomplished in the Reformation. So that's one of the, the things he's going to refer to here. He says, uh, some people see this as the Waldensians or the Albigensians. 
Uh, for those of you who have never studied church history, there are two groups within the history of the church who kind of uh, tried to, to reform the church and stand, you know, separate themselves from the church because of the corruption that was involved in the church at that period. So some people view this as being those people trying to be a true witness for God during that time. A third view also embraced by many in the idealist school would be that the two witnesses are, are the Old Testament and the New Testament, or perhaps the law and the prophet. Law and the prophets, which is the way, you know, the, a lot of people broke down the Bible, the, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. As for these views, not only is there no evidence for the presence of the church in chapter 11, but also the actions of the two witnesses are hardly in keeping with the witness of the church. The various historical figures who might be assigned are unlikely just by the virtue of the great variety of suggestions. In other words, there's been so many people suggested it almost becomes silly. You know, uh, you could almost throw anybody in there uh, as, as, as a, an historical suggestion. The idea that the figures represent the Old and New Testament seems odd when one considers that they are clothed in sackcloth and actually have power to unleash various kinds of plagues. Furthermore, they are, are eventually martyred and raised to heaven, all of which seems impossible for the Old and New Testament. So, you know, the, the, the details of it, again, are problematic for taking it in a purely, uh, you know, kind of idealistic way. It seems to be talking about literal things that are happening to these two witnesses. So what's left? Well, let me read something else here to give you the, the first one of these, uh, these, these final four views. Four more views uh, are those assumed by futurists uh, who anticipate appropriately identifying these two as actual witnesses, real living individuals in the tribulation period. However, from there, all similarities vanish. The first such view recognizes that there is dependence on Zechariah 4, where two figures are introduced. Zechariah's readers hear the prophet's testimony that he sees two olive trees and a seven-branched lampstand. The account in Revelation differs in that there are two lampstands. The olive trees in Zechariah appear to represent the two anointed figures, Zerubbabel, the, the civil leader, and Joshua, the high priest of chapter 3, who is the spiritual leader. These are pictured as olive trees providing the light of the lampstand. However, in Revelation, there are two olive trees and two lampstands. Obvious dependence on Zechariah 4 has led some to believe that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 should be identified as Zerubbabel and Joshua. Certainly this is possible, but unlikely. The actions of the two witnesses do not correspond to all the actions of Zerubbabel and Joshua in Revela uh, as revealed in Zechariah. And there seems to be no really good reason to make this identification other than the reference to the two olive trees. Rather, the connection to Zechariah's prophecy is specifically to Zechariah 4.14, where Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. In the same manner, the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are anointed specifically by God for a ministry that will be observed by the whole world. So almost no scholar debates that, you know, Zechariah 4 is, provides a lot of the backdrop for this passage because the similarities are so great. But as he points out, there's really no real reason to believe that this is actually Zerubbabel and Joshua kind of come back from the dead to be these two witnesses, which is the view of some. You know, they, they look at similarities and they say, well, that's who this must be, but not everything about it really, really fits. Uh, nothing that the, the literal Zerubbabel and Joshua did in Zechariah kind of fits with what is being done here. So that seems unlikely. It just seems more that they are kind of a, a foreshadowing of what will happen here. That this will be two literal people, uh, but not... Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now another view that was very common is the view that this was Enoch and Elijah. That was a view that was very common in the early church. In fact, it was, it was a widely held view among the church fathers. 
that the two witnesses one day would be Enoch and Elijah. Some of you probably are already thinking through and you're, and you're seeing the logic of this. Enoch and Elijah, because the Bible tells us they never face death. You know, we're, we're told that it's appointed to man once to die. And so the argument is, well, since they never died, since, since Genesis 5, 24 tells us that Enoch walked with the Lord and then he was not, that God took him into heaven, uh, and 2 Kings 2, 11 tells us that, that uh, uh, Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. So since the two of them never face death, and everybody has to face death at some point, then that means these are the two. And God brings them back in the, at the time of the tribulation, and they become these two great witnesses. Okay? Now, it, that, again, that's certainly a possibility. Is it the most likely one? Probably not. You know, for the, the kind of the, the, the logic of it makes some sense, but one, the, the reference that is appointed to man wants to die is actually, you know, kind of a general rule. But what do you do with the tribulation? Or I mean with the, uh, the rapture? What do you do with people who are alive on the earth when Christ comes back? Now again, most of them will die at some point during the tribulation, or during the, uh, the millennial kingdom. But, you know, it, it seems to be that the, the, the rule that it's appointed to man once to die is a general rule. That is what's true of mankind. doesn't mean God cannot take certain people like Enoch and like Elijah and accept them from that rule. Another possibility is, you know, if you, if you think of how Paul describes the fact that we must all change, that these corrupted bodies must put off corruption and put on incorruption. Everyone. You know, and Paul there is, is, is you know, in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of scholars, is speaking of the rapture. Well, that means that even though that person doesn't face an earthly death before Christ takes them in the rapture, they are facing a type of death. There is a change. The, this corrupted human body is done away with in that process, and an you know, a, a, a incorruptible body is put in its place, which you could argue is a type of death, even though it's not the, you know, the kind of death we think of. It is a change, certainly, and the Bible is very clear that all of us have to go through that change because our sinful bodies cannot spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. That incorruptible body has to be put in its place. So some of the logic of this position kind of disappears a little bit. And beyond that, there's probably, you know, beyond just that idea of, of you know, them never having died, there's not a whole lot else to argue for this position, that it's Enoch and Elijah. That brings us to kind of the next to last position, and that is that this is Moses and Elijah. This is probably the most popular position amongst scholars who see these events of Revelation as future. That this is speaking of Moses and Elijah. There are several reasons for that. Um, one I want to point out is that the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you guys remember who appeared to him on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. So we already know of one time where, you know, essentially the ghosts of Moses and Elijah were brought back to the earth and came before Jesus. As witnessed by three of his disciples also. Because remember, they wanted to build you know, altars for everybody. And God rebuked them for that because Jesus is the one who should be worshipped. The point of the Mount of Transfiguration is to show that Jesus was the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. Because the thing that Moses and Elijah stand, stood for, for from the Jewish people was the law and the prophets. Moses was the lawgiver. So you saw, see, even Jesus said this. 
What, does, what did Moses say? Guys, you ever see that, pass, uh, that, that phrase in the Gospels when you're reading it? Jesus will ask people, what did Moses say? Well, it doesn't mean Moses made it up and said it on his own. He wasn't the authority behind it. When you said, what did Moses say, you were actually saying, what does the law say? Because Moses was the lawgiver. Jesus, no matter how much he, he debated and disputed with, with the Pharisees, even in chapter 33, uh, or chapter 23 of Matthew, when he's just, just, you know, just crushing the Pharisees, calling them a den of vipers and whitewashed tombs and, and just, you know, just hammering them. He tells the people, when they sit in the seat of Moses, Listen to what they have to say, but don't live like them because they're a brood of vipers. When they are giving you the law, listen. When they sit in Moses' seat. See, Moses represented the law to the Jewish people because he was the lawgiver. But it was God's law. It wasn't Moses's. It was God's. Elijah represented the prophets. Elijah and his immediate predecessor, Elisha, were the two greatest miracle workers in the Bible before the time of Jesus. Actually, Elisha did more miracles biblically than even Elijah did, but Elijah did the big ones that we remember. Remember the, the, the prophets of Baal? You know? Elijah represented the prophets and all the power of God upon the prophets to bring that prophetic message of correction to Israel. So Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. And so many people look at these two uh, and, and witnesses and they say, you know, look, look at what they do. The description of their powers represents very much what Moses and Elijah did. Now, Moses and Elijah didn't make fire come out of their mouths, but Elijah did call down fire from heaven to destroy the enemies of God, did he not? So many people will look at that and they say, that, you know, that's the correlation. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time of their prophesying. Remember again, Elijah? Just like one of Elijah's miracles. They have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they went. Remember Moses and the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt? Wasn't that one of the plagues? Turning water into blood? So you see the similarities and you see why so many scholars say these two are Moses and Elijah. Okay? There is, however, one more possibility, and that is that these two are not anyone who's come from the past. They are just two Jews who have come to believe Jesus was their Messiah and come to faith during the time of the tribulation. And God raises them up as two mighty prophets during that particular time and endues them with the power of of Moses and Elijah, the power to be his prophets. Really, probably the two most likely positions are those last two, that they are Moses and Elijah, or they are just two prophets whose names we do not know. There's no reason for God to give their names. The point of what they do is, is, is they are a witness to God, not to themselves. But very much kind of in the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua, God raises them up during their time, just like he did Zerubbabel and Joshua, and says, here, make a stand for me. Very much in the way that God raised up Moses and raised up Elijah. We have the story of Moses and how unlikely it seemed after his first failure in Egypt and his fleeing out into the wilderness and staying there for 40 years to run from his failure that God could possibly use him, but yet God did, didn't he not?
Did he not? So that is the other real possibility, that these are just two people who, during God's day, that he has you know, risen to, to a position of being prophets. Interestingly enough, though Moses and Elijah is probably the position taken by more uh, conservative futurist scholars than, anybody, than anyone else, some of the real luminaries uh, you know, in that position, like John Walvoord, uh, have taken the position that this is probably just two scholars or two, two uh, uh, prophets of that time period, two people that God will rise up, raise up during that time period. I don't know. I, I'm not even, you know, I, I'm not going to try to tell you this is what it is. Uh, really, any one of those last four are a possibility. If you, if you take God's word at face value, any one of those last four are possible. If you had to ask me where I would lean, I would say very, very slightly, kind of about like that, to it being two people that are contemporary to the time period. I think that's probably the most likely. It has, it has less problems than anything else. Because the problem with it being any Old Testament character, uh, you know, is there's always going to be arguments that, no, that doesn't really fit. Well, there is no real argument that it doesn't really fit for it being two people in its own time period. So I think that's probably the most likely, uh, but I only lean very slightly that way. I think the last two are probably the best. So that's kind of the big debate, the debate over who these people are. Now, what do they do? Well, one, they witness. They are called the two witnesses, so they are meant by God to, to have a witness for him during this time to tell people that Jesus is the Messiah, to tell people what God has done, to be a witness for the truth. We are told twice in this passage that they prophesy. So they are given the gift of prophecy. They, 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 uh, and again, those two things really in many ways go hand in hand. As we discussed before, when we tend to think of prophecy and Old Testament prophets, we think of people who predicted the future. And though that was a part of what a prophet did, it was actually a very small part. Uh, I, I just was listening to a guy uh, la last night, a, a really renowned Old Testament scholar, uh, you know, who, who said that uh, many scholars view the, the prophets uh, as, as kind of uh, uh, covenant enforcers. You know, that's kind of a, a, a term used by a lot of Old Testament scholars. That the job of the prophet in the Old Testament was essentially to enforce the covenant. When the people of God started, you know, walking away from their covenant responsibilities with God, God would call a prophet to go to them and say, hey, come back. Keep the covenant. Keep faithfulness. Keep covenant belief in Yahweh. Because if you don't, this is what will happen. And as you read the prophets, that is what they did, largely. So, they, they, you know, these two will be witnesses, and they will be prophets, and those two things really kind of go, you know, very much hand in hand. They will also, as we see, bring judgment. People will not like their message. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but people never, uh, as a general rule, the, the world around us does not like the message of Christianity. And we tend to kind of tend to think in our modern times that, you know, well, this is a new thing. But it's not. It's not a new thing. It's always been the case. You know, we lived in a time in America where people were once much more accepting to it, but that doesn't mean they really liked it or really followed it. You know, we kind of assume a lot of that, but there's not much evidence to actually support that. You know... It, People never like the message of God. Even God's own people don't always like the message of God. That's why those Old Testament prophets existed. Why do you think Paul and Peter and John wrote so many letters that we now have as the New Testament? Almost all those letters are correcting problems that happen among God's people. Saying, stop doing this, do this instead. The reality is we don't always like God's message. So 
So the world of their day will not like the message of these two scholars. It will vehemently oppose their message. You know, God says right away, any who try to hurt them, they'll have this power to, to kind of shoot fire at them and kill them. God builds into them a self-defense system because the world will try to hurt them. It will try to shut them up. And God will give them the ability to defend themselves, but not just defend themselves, but to bring judgment. Not only with the fire from their mouths, but also the different plagues they call down. Very much the way God did with Egypt. You know, those things on Egypt were a way of God breaking them down and trying to convince them to accept Him as truth. But it was also a judgment upon them for not doing that. And God used that to free his own people. And so that seems to be the power that's given to to these two. They will witness, they will prophesy, and they will bring judgment. We've already discussed the time frame. The time frame seems to be the last three and a half years of the tribulation. 42 months mentioned first and then 1,260 days mentioned. Essentially three and a half years. We've talked about their, their powers already. Um, we've talked a little bit already about their opposition. Uh, just to save time, I, I was going to read something I thought was really good, but I'll, we'll save that to another, another time. Um, you know, just again, think of the fact that the gospel is both good news and bad news. You guys ever notice that? Remember a few chapters ago when John was told to eat the scroll and it would be sweet to his taste, but it would be sour in his stomach? See, that's the nature of the gospel for God's people. For us who have accepted Christ, it's the sweetest news that anyone could ever give. But you know, it also comes with a word of judgment What did Jesus say? Any who do not accept it will be condemned. When you are trying to tell someone about Christ, that is a part of the message, is it not? You must accept Christ as your Savior. You must take Him into your heart. You must be changed or you will be condemned. You will be separated from God eternally. The gospel always has that two-pronged sense to it. Good news, that's what it means. That's what gospel means, good news. Sweet flavor. But to any who do not accept it, it is the news of judgment and condemnation. Now, real quickly, verses 7 through 14. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, uh, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood, uh, stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. When they went up to heaven in a cloud while, the en- while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven the second woe is past the third is coming soon we see here the death and resurrection of these two witnesses their death we notice that they have finished when they have finished their testimony they are under God's power under God's protection the sovereign God will not allow anything to happen to them until he is done with them until their task is finished. Even in this midst of these crazy things that we read, it it tells us time and time again that God is in control. 
God ultimately is in control of these events. None of this gets away from God. So they won't die until he is done, until they've completed their task. Then it says, the beast who comes from the abyss. Well, who is this? Probably not Satan, because we'll see that he is going to be associated with the dragon later on. And we are about to get into those passages um, you know, here soon. Though we might not, we might not until the fall, because we'll be breaking at the end of the month of, of May. So we may not get to that until the fall. But uh, uh, you know, probably not Satan. Probably a reference here to the Antichrist uh, and him taking power uh, and and you know, killing these two witnesses. Uh, their treatment is terrible. People view their bodies and rejoice. Uh, at the time of this writing, when people first heard this, uh, you know, it would have taken a miracle for people around the world to see them lying there in the street. Doesn't take a miracle anymore, does it? All it takes is you picking up your phone. The whole world could view it now, anybody that has a cell phone. You know, just at a tap and right there it is. So they will be, people will watch this event, these events and they will rejoice because they saw these people as a torment. They did not like their message. They saw the things that they did as, as tormenting the earth and they will rejoice. They will even start a holiday. They will send one another gifts. I, the first thought that came into my head was a fool's holiday. They will send one another gifts to celebrate the destruction of the two witnesses. And then something really amazing happens. It says the breath of the life of God came into their bodies and they stood on their feet. Imagine watching that on your phone. You're at break time. Oh yeah, man, there, there's, two witness, there's two dead witnesses still laying there. Oh, what just happened, man? That guy got up. It says terror struck the people. As likely it would. Terror filled the, the, the people in opposition to them when they saw them come to life. But it didn't last long because very shortly after that, they ascend to heaven in a cloud, very much like the picture of Jesus ascending to heaven. In many ways, their, uh, their death and resurrection and ascension kind of mirrors Jesus, and that's intentional. Their witness is to Jesus. Their witness is what he has done. And so in like manner, God will rise, raise them from the dead and will ascend them into heaven. As the, as their, but instead, Jesus' followers, his disciples, stood and watched him go into heaven. Notice who's standing watching this time. What's it say? His enemies. Their enemies stood and watched. And immediately following that, an earthquake hits the city. Now, what is this city? It's, it's called here Sodom, and it's called, you know, uh, it's called Egypt. But the city where Christ died is very clear. That's Jerusalem. For a Jew like John to have to call his city the holy city, Sodom and Egypt had to be a horrible moment for John. An acknowledgement of the fact that his own people did not accept their Messiah. A sad moment for John. But that is what it is called. And an earthquake hits the city, and that phrase there that, that, that's, that's given, uh, at that very hour, uh, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed. Uh, you know, th there's, there's a, a phrase used there uh, talking about the names, the, the actual Greek phrase is, is kind of, uh, you know, the, the names of the people. The, you know, the it, it, it focuses on these were names, and many scholars look at that and they say that because that phrase that's in the Greek, it probably means they were renowned. The 7,000 people that died were people who were known to the rest of the people. 
somehow the ones that will die will be ones who are kind of figures of the, of, of the rebellion against God, and God will specifically judge them. The phrase that comes into English, it's, it's why no language translates perfectly into another language. We just have people. But it's not that in, in Greek. In Greek, it's much more uh, targeted. Known people will die. And everyone else will marvel and notice what they're driven to. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. All the things we've seen happen, and, and the refrain has always been, and people still did not repent. And there's more coming yet where it will say people still did not repent. But at this one moment, people are going to look at this and they're going to give glory to the God of heaven because there's no other explanation for what they'll see here. Now, does that mean they truly come to faith? Maybe some, maybe not. No one really knows. Is it just a moment of glorifying God? The Bible does tell us that one day every knee will bow, including the enemies of Christ, and have to acknowledge. So this could be a moment like that, so nobody really knows for sure. All right, we are out of time. Um, sorry, well, I've, we're seven minutes over, but lot to cover today. Uh, incredible passage of Scripture. Difficult passage of Scripture. A lot to deal with. Uh, hopefully, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't lose anybody uh, you know, with all the different ideas and stuff. I, I think you, know, you guys pretty much understood what, what we talked about here today. Uh, so read the rest of chapter 11 next week, and we will, we will discuss the, the rest of chapter, of chapter 11. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it is difficult at times for us. Uh, and many good people who love you and have given their heart to you and, and, and many scholars who've given a lifetime to the study of your word because of their love for you and their love for your word still can't agree over these things that we see here. And so it is difficult. But Father, we know that in the midst of it all, it is pointing to your control. You're in control of all these events. Nothing, nothing here takes away your control and your power and what you are trying to accomplish. And so, Father, for that we praise you. Nothing in our lives is out of your control. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your Spirit that indwells us. Father, we pray that we would give you proper worship and learn from your word today now as we go into the worship service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.